Uh, If you've got a Bible, do me a favor, turn in it to the gospel according to John chapter seven, verses 25 through, oh, just punched my microphone. Um, John chapter seven, 25 through to 34. If not, it'll be on the screen. Uh, That's totally fine. Um, We're continuing this series we started in December, going through the gospel of John, and we've kind of been walking through it now, like I said, since December. But if you'll remember, we've been honing in specifically on chapter seven over these last two or three weeks. Right before that, Jesus did this incredible thing in which he gathered for himself a following of several thousand people, and then he lost all of those people over the course of one day. And so he multiplied the bread that was brought to him and he fed this massive crowd and they were all ready to to follow him wherever. And then Jesus started saying all this weird stuff like, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. And all those people who were really impressed with the miracle concerning the bread said, actually, I don't know that I wanna hang out with this guy anymore. And they all left. And right after that, Jesus's brothers give him some advice. It's, It's almost like they're giving him public relations advice. They're like, listen, you had all these followers. Most of them think you're weird now but we've got some ideas for how you can get people to follow you again. There's this festival going on in Jerusalem. It's called the Feast of Booths. And Jesus would have been aware of this, but maybe we aren't aware of this. It was uh, sort of like the fall festival in Judaism. It celebrated the time that the people of Israel spent in the wilderness. And they say, everybody's there. If you go up there and you do some miracles like you've been doing, maybe people will follow you again. Maybe they'll forget about all this strange stuff you've been saying. And Jesus says, the reason they don't like me isn't just because I say strange things. The reason why the crowds and why the world doesn't like me is because I tell them what they don't want to hear. And what they don't want to hear is that what they do is evil. They need to turn from it. And so it's as if Jesus says, it doesn't matter what sort of PR advice you give me, as long as I keep telling the truth, people aren't always going to like me. And so the the crowd sort of mirrors this. Jesus' brothers go up to the feast without him And then Jesus goes up separately. And we see that there's these crowds that are sort of having conversations. Even though Jesus goes up in secret, they're talking to each other. Some of them say, you know, this is is the Messiah. And other people say, this is a false prophet who's leading people astray. There's a debate about who Jesus is. And midway through the festival, sometime around the third or fourth day, Jesus sort of reveals himself to the crowds at the temple and he begins teaching And again, the crowds are really confused by what he's saying. And some of the people in the crowd say, he's possessed, he has a demon. And other people say, I don't know, what he's saying seems to make at least a little bit of sense. And that brings us to our passage. Jesus has been teaching in the temple over the course of this festival week. And we see in verse 25 that some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, in light of what Jesus has been teaching, Is not this the man who they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. And so you see over the course of John 7 that that everybody in the crowd has a slightly different opinion about Jesus. So in the section I kind of summarized, there's people going, this guy's possessed. And and then in the passage prior that we talked about two weeks ago, there's people going, this is a false teacher. They don't go so far as to say like, this is an exorcism 
situation, but they're like, he's not quite right. And then we see here this crowd that says, this might actually be the Messiah. This, this man might actually be the Christ. But the fact that everybody encountering Jesus is divided over who Jesus is kind of underscores this reality that I think is important. The reality of Jesus always divides people. Jesus, in, in some way, just by virtue of who he is, he's divisive. There's no neutral place to stand when you face Jesus. He doesn't leave you the opportunity of being indifferent. You have to choose who you think he is. You have to come to some sort of a decision about him. You, you can't approach Jesus and leave with a shrug. A couple of years ago, I was a part of a Bible study that met near USF because that's the school that I was going to. And um, it was cool because it was the sort of thing where a lot of people brought their friends. And so we had all sorts of people from all sorts of different backgrounds. And so uh, we had people who were Hare Krishnas who would stop by and, and people who were Jewish and all these different faith backgrounds. And it was a Christian Bible study, but people were always bringing their friends from different faiths and having conversations. And uh, there was one time that a friend uh, brought another friend of theirs from campus who was a Muslim. And we were having just a really great conversation over the course of her time there about a lot of the overlap between what we believe, right? We, we both believe that God has spoken and that God expects something of us. And, and we both believe that there's only one God, even though we would define that very differently. But then at the end of it, even after all of the things that we were like, well, you know, I may not totally agree with that, but I can see where you're coming from at the end. She and I both agreed, like, we divide over Jesus, don't we? She said, yeah. I said, we, we, both, we both like Jesus, but I think he's God. She said, I don't think that. Jesus is the dividing line in so many ways. He's the dividing line even in his own day. You see it in the crowds. They can't agree, but nobody stays neutral. And yet that's probably the case in this room too. Like I know that all of us are coming from, from different backgrounds and, and some of us are sure of what we believe and we, we confess with Christians throughout history that Jesus isn't just a good man, but he's the son of God. He's divine. And then others of us are like, I don't, I don't really know. I don't know. I'm thinking this through. I'm trying to figure out what I believe about Jesus. And listen, don't, don't hear me pressuring you to make a decision without thinking it through. I've, I've built my philosophy of ministry around the idea that you don't have to stop thinking to be a Christian. Actually, like to be a Christian is to press us deeper into what it means to think carefully. I believe Christianity is the only way to make sense of the universe we find ourselves in. So, so if you're not sure what you think, I want you to think it through. I really, really do. But at the same time, there comes a point or you have to decide. There comes a point where the middle ground is shifting out from under you. And you have to make a decision. Who is this Jesus? It's happening even in Jesus's day. And there's people who are thinking, this might actually be the Messiah. This might actually be the one that we've been waiting for. And yet, I don't know if you, you caught this, even as people are thinking that, there's, there's another phrase that they're thinking through. In verse 27, they say, well, we know where this man comes from. 
And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. It's as if they entertain the thought that maybe Jesus is actually the Messiah. Maybe he's actually the son of God. And then they go, ah, but we know where he came from. Like we know his background. He, he couldn't be the Messiah. And what's going on here is this, that in Israel, in Jesus's day, there was a couple different theories about where the Messiah was going to come from. There was debate about it. And so there was a very strong consensus that he would come from Bethlehem. And you see this in the Magi in Matthew's gospel, right? They've read the Hebrew scriptures and they're following the star and they're like, we know he's gonna be born in Bethlehem and this is why Herod uh, seeks to kill all the children in Bethlehem. But if you read the Dead Sea Scrolls, which were written by this sort of sect within Judaism, they're all convinced that no one will know where the Messiah comes from. They're convinced that the only way that we'll know that this is the Messiah is if they just sort of appear out of nowhere, if they have no sort of beginning or end. And so there's all these ideas of like, well, this is how we'll know it's the Messiah. And then other people are like, no, this is how we'll know it's the Messiah. And it seems like in the crowd, there's these people who are entertaining this idea, right? Maybe Jesus really is the Messiah. And then they go, ah, oh, that couldn't be the case. We know he's from Nazareth. We heard he was born in Bethlehem. But reading the gospels is kind of like, gosh, this is such a lame analogy, but it's kind of like watching like a Batman movie in the sense that, like I'm super hip now, right? I used a superhero reference. Um, it's in the sense that when you watch those movies, you know pretty much from the beginning Bruce Wayne's secret identity, right? Like Bruce Wayne's talking to all these politicians and all these police officers, and they're talking to Bruce Wayne about what they think about Batman without actually knowing that Bruce Wayne is Batman. But you know he's Batman. And it becomes a sort of irony where someone's talking to Bruce Wayne and they're like, I just hate that Batman. And he sort of swirls his champagne and goes, I know. You see, the, the people who are having this conversation, they say, we know where Jesus comes from. He was born in Nazareth. But they don't know where Jesus comes from. They never read John 1. They don't actually know where Jesus has come from. They don't know that Jesus has come from heaven. They don't know that he's been sent by the Father. And so even as they think that they've found a way to dismiss Jesus, even as they think that they've found a way to go, oh, we don't really have to worry about him. He can't be the Messiah. I can go on with my life. The fact is they can't because they're wrong. And, and this is kind of astounding because you've got all of these ideas that are in play in Judaism at this time about where the Messiah is going to come from. He's gonna come from Bethlehem. He's gonna come of the house of David. No, he's not gonna come from Bethlehem. We're not gonna know where he comes from. And Jesus matches all of them. Like even the ones that seem contradictory. Jesus is both from Bethlehem, but also he's from heaven and nobody recognizes that. He's both known in the sense that the Magi were looking for and he's unknown in the sense that the people in this crowd are looking for, but they're looking for a way to dismiss him. They're looking for a way to take everything Jesus is saying and go, we don't really have to worry about this. And isn't that what we do constantly? Like, it, it, isn't that what we do every time we feel conviction of sin. Like I know I'm guilty of it. When, when I've done something that I know is wrong and yet I don't wanna feel uh, the weight of Jesus through his spirit convicting me, I go, I just have an overactive conscience. Like this, that's not, it's not really that big of a deal. I'm just overtired and when I'm overtired, I get emotional and that's why I feel convicted about this. There's really no big deal. I can kind of sweep this under the rug. 
Or maybe when you've had a, a brother or sister or friend from the church who's come to you and said, hey, Travis, I'll use my name. Hey, Travis, um, I think you really need to, you need to think about this in your life. You need to address this. And I'm able to sort of sweep it under the rug and go, yeah, but they're like the really legalistic friend of mine. So it, I don't need to worry about that. Or, or yeah, yeah, you know, they're, they're the person who takes things way too seriously and they know that I was joking and I wasn't actually being mean and I can sweep it under the rug. In the same way that this crowd tries to just dismiss Jesus by going, he might be the Christ, but we know where he comes from. We sort of do the same thing. I know where this comes from. I don't have to deal with it. Let me ignore it and move on. And yet, Jesus knows that they're wrong. They, they think that they know where Jesus has come from, but they don't. And so Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple in verse 28, you know me and you know where I come from, but I've not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true and him you do not know. I know him for I come from him and he sent me. So this is one of the instances in the Bible where I think that Jesus is being sarcastic because the whole crowd has said, we know where he comes from. And Jesus says, you do? You really know where I've come from? Are you sure about that? No, they, they don't know where Jesus has come from. But then Jesus kind of reframes the question, doesn't he? Because he stops talking about where he's come from, which is heaven. And he starts talking about who sent him, which is the father. He says, you know where I've come from? You don't know the person who sent me. And then he says, but I do. You don't know the father, but I do. And that's, that's a helpful corrective for us kind of in our day and age. Um, I think so often we come to the Bible, we come to faith with some preconceived notions about what God is like in the back of our mind. And we come to the Bible going, it can't possibly say this because I know that God wouldn't say anything like this. And where we know that from is like an episode of Oprah or a podcast or a movie that we watched one time. And so we come to scripture thinking, I know what God is like, therefore I can screen out all the things I don't like. But Jesus says to this crowd, you don't know what God is like. I do because he sent me. Yet, that's also one of the ways that we avoid conviction, right? I know what God is like, and I know that he would never call me to repent. I know what God is like, and I know that he would never tell me to do anything other than what makes me happy. I know what God is like, and I know that he would never tell me to forgive this person who wronged me. I know what God is like, and I know, I know, I know, I know. And that's what the crowd is doing. And Jesus says, you don't know the one who sent me, but I do. It's almost a picture of or it's almost pictured well um, by one of the most famous allegories in philosophy. There was this guy named Plato who lived 2,400 years ago. And in one of his most famous books, he uses what's called the allegory of the cave. And Plato's allegory of the cave is basically this. Imagine that there's a couple individuals who are chained up inside of a cave and they can only face the wall. And behind them, maybe a couple hundred yards back, there's a fire. 
And so they're facing the wall in the darkness with only the light of the fire. And every so often, someone passes between their backs and the fire and casts a shadow on the wall. Maybe an animal. Let's say a cat. I like cats. Cats are passing back and forth behind the prisoners in Plato's cave. Wow. People think that Plato's the smartest who ever lived, but he didn't think to put cats in his allegory. What a mistake on his part. And so the the people in the cave, they're looking at the shadows and they're going, okay, I've got a name for this. I think I understand what it is. And they they might understand in some way, like I know the general shape of a cat, but, but all they really see is the shadow until one day somebody somehow is released. Maybe the chains rust away. And so uh, this individual leaves the cave and goes and actually sees the cats. And he's overjoyed. And he comes back and he tells everybody, I know what this thing is. I know what it's like. And they go, no, you don't. We're looking at it. It's right here. It's an imperfect metaphor because Plato is not trying to teach us about the incarnation. And yet, in some sense, it grasps at the reality of our condition, that in the darkness of the cave of this fallen world, we're all sort of staring at shadows and trying to guess what God is like. And yet Jesus is is not the person who was in the cave who left and came back. Jesus is the person who steps in from outside the cave and sits down next to us and puts the shackles on with us and says, this is the fullness of what's been casting the shadow. This is what God is really like. You think you understand, but you've been staring at shadows all along. That gets to that passage that Zida read for us in worship. No one has ever seen God except the son who was at the father's side. He has made him known. Jesus says to the crowd, you don't know the one who sent me, but I do. Which means that if we look through the lens of Jesus, we can know what God is like. I remember... um, a number of years ago, I was having a conversation with somebody. Um, it was at the taco bus, and I just distinctly remember that because it was back when taco bus was fantastic. And we were, we were just talking about religion, and this person was spiritual but not religious. And they said, here's, here's the problem with Christianity. Christians act like they know what God's like. And I, I think in, in this guy's mind, he's thinking of us as people sitting in chains in the cave, staring at shadows. And we just happen to be better at picking out the forms of shadows than other people. But Christians aren't saying we're sitting in the cave and we're just really good at looking at shadows in the dark. We're saying that the one outside of the cave came in and told us. That the one who knows God, God himself has stepped into the cave. Not that we figured it out through thinking really hard and ascending the mountain of philosophy, but the one who knows the Father has made him known. So I wonder what the lies that we believe about God might be. I wonder what false ideas we have about God because they've been sort of sown into us culturally. Maybe it's what we were taught when we were younger. Maybe it's what we heard from some terrible televangelist. All of these ideas about God, shadows in the cave, Maybe it's this idea that God is 
perpetually angry waiting to strike you with lightning. Or maybe it's the idea that God doesn't get angry about anything. Maybe it's the idea that God is totally distant and passive, and even if he exists, he's not particularly concerned with our lives. All of these are, are shadows against the wall. And if we would see God, we look to Jesus. Jesus is the one who makes the Father known. And that gets to that passage we read from Job. Job, in the midst of all his suffering, he's lost his family, he's been stricken with illness. And yet what he holds on to is, with my eyes, I will see the Lord. And I won't see him as a stranger. And he doesn't come to us as a stranger. No, God comes to us in the person of Jesus. That's what we hold on to. But that also means that we have to be willing to shift our ideas about God and bring them into submission about what Jesus says because he's the one who knows. Let's pray. Father, we love you. And Father, we love you because Christ has made you known to us that he was with you in the beginning, but became flesh and dwelt among us. Together you've poured out the spirit, the spirit that, that gives us wisdom, the spirit that inspired your word, that convicts us. God, I pray that where we, like the crowds, have tried to find ways to dismiss um, conviction, God, I pray that you would break through our stony hearts God, where we have found ways to reimagine you outside of who you are, God, I pray that as we look to Jesus, you would correct our bad ideas about you. God, we pray that you'd make us more like Christ, um, that you'd teach us to love you with our whole hearts, to follow Jesus with our whole hearts. We ask that you do all of this in Jesus' name. And through the Holy Spirit, we say, amen.